Welcome to the Woke Blokes Podcast, hosted by Nick Sutherland from MindFit and Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Woke Blokes Podcast. It is Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing here, joined as always by Nick Sutherland from MindFit. And we have an amazing guest on today that we are very, very excited to talk to. It's Catherine Ingram. She is international Dharma teacher with communities in the US, Europe, and Australia. Since 1992, she's led Dharma Dialogues, which are public events that encourage the intelligent use of awareness within one's own personal life and in one's community. Catherine also leads numerous silent retreats each year in conjunction with Dharma Dialogues. She's president of Living Dharma, an educational nonprofit organization founded back in 1995. Uh, A former journalist specializing in issues of consciousness and activism, which I can't wait to talk about that actually today, because that's come up on the podcast a few times before. Uh, Catherine's the author of two books of non fiction which are published in numerous language languages in the footsteps of gandhi and also passionate presence seven qualities of awakened awareness which i know nico wants to dive uh, deep into today and also a novel called a crack in everything um and also probably the crowning achievement is guest on the woke blokes podcast Catherine, how are you today very well thank you very happy to be here with you guys oh fantastic we'll, we're very happy we'll as well to, we'll have to update Catherine's wikipedia page now <laughs> on the first line leave it as a footnote down the end perhaps <laughs> uh nico we'll we'll throw over to you mate because uh you've uh championed getting Catherine on today i know you've spoken uh, about her to me and I, that's why i can't wait to speak to her as well so maybe just let the listeners know you know what led you to, to getting Catherine on today yeah well it was um through so Dumbo Feather is a magazine um, in Australia, but I think they're based in Victoria. I think they're actually local to the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm an hour south of Melbourne, Catherine, on the on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and my girlfriend loved the magazine, so I bought her a subscription to, to Dumbo Feather, and it just became a cool thing for us to read in bed at night and and then i came across uh an interview with catherine in there and i was just <laughs> i can't tell you how much it resonated i was like oh my god that's what i do that's what i do that's what i talk about that's what i teach that's what i and it's like ding 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 and then yeah we looked her up and found uh a couple of books that she's written so we purchased passionate presence the seven qualities to awakened awareness and we started reading that in bed and my girlfriend's like this is amazing so yeah and then the podcast um that catherine's doing um the dharma dialogues and everything i'm sort of using that as a resource for a lot of my clients so yeah it was just a a no-brainer really to ask and and thankfully catherine accepted to spend some time with us today well i'm so honored that's that's lovely (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think we'll start off, Catherine, um, you know, just thinking about the, the listers and we've obviously when I was reading out kind of your bio, the word Dharma came up a lot. And for those who are listening, a lot will know, but some who won't know, what does that word uh, Dharma mean? Yeah, you know, traditionally, in, it's a Sanskrit word. It's used both in Hinduism and in Buddhism. But I've had such a long relationship with the word starting in the early 70s that I have my own translation, <laughs> which is finding a thread of underlying harmony through whatever circumstance or situation one finds oneself in. Um, Happy life, sad life, difficult moments, frustration, anger, whatever it is, 
there is a way to move the attention into what I would call a dharmic perspective or a, a, a sort of field of dharmic um, resonance that I know there's nothing magical about this. It's nothing esoteric. It doesn't, it's not some steady state either, but just a kind of inclination to finding a more harmonious way of perceiving and experiencing life. Mm, I love that. That is, that is beautiful. It kind of ties in, Nick. It feels good just listening to it. I was finding some harmony in myself as I was listening. (laughs) And traditionally. It is that it's that you, you, it's like, there's a kind of um, intentionality that starts to grow in oneself. So mm. even in really hard moments and looking at, of course, we're looking at what's happening on the world stage and it brings up every possible kind of emotion that meant much of which is hard. <laughs> um, and to really go to, go to the place in yourself that can, that I like to say, sit on your mountain seat of freedom, you know, that you're watching the view and you're seeing it from a much more vast perspective. Um, right. And, and Catherine, what do you think? I mean, a lot of people are out of harmony at the minute, in disharmony. So what, what, what pulls us human beings out of that harmonious state? Well, fear is usually the main culprit. Um, and then on top of fear comes a lot of other um, qualities <laughs> that, um, you know, that, that, rage and bad behavior and separation and violence and so on uh, and depression um, and anxiety. Um, but the, you know, the underlying, I'd say the underlying driving force, the prime mover is, is basic fear. And we're quite encoded with fear as human beings. It's not, um, you know, it's not, Uh, foreign to our experience of life you know it's partly why we have survived this long is that our ancestors first of all they were tough they were a tough lot to have made it through and thread that needle all those centuries right you're of you and I and all of us are of really strong stock even though sometimes we don't feel it but we actually are Um, but part of it also is you know knowing when to run and when to get out of the way of trouble and of, of danger and all of those kinds of things. So it's, it's really well encoded in our, our, in our system and especially our reptilian brain. But, um, you know, I, I do see in my own case and having worked with so many people for so long, you don't need to eradicate fear or even anxiety. I tend to have anxiety, but you can manage it. And so my recommendation always is to simply return to calm as frequently as you can to keep moving the attention, even when it's crazy. And even when you're in complete, uh, you know, a, a moment that, that you feel that you're not going to be able to endure one, one more second without screaming. Um, that's the moment to remind yourself in, in whatever ways you can and whatever tools you might use Right. Some people, for some people, it's they just need to go for a walk or they need to have a shower or have a cup of tea or call a friend or read something that calms them down or sit silently and meditate. Sometimes that's very hard to do, though, in the moment of extreme stress. So there are other ways you can mitigate it um, <clears throat> that you know are fair game. Use any of them. <laughs> 
that, I, that's, it. I think you speak about the ebb and flow really of, of life and whether that's in nature or, and, and within ourselves, our emotional state does ebb and flow. So just coming back to that sense of stillness and observation and just, yeah, not not reacting in my work i talk about suffering versus unnecessary suffering and yeah. you know we are human we're going to experience suffering to a degree but it turns into unnecessary suffering where we start compounding it and thinking we shouldn't be feeling this or have an attachment to or want to be feeling something else or an aversion to experiencing whatever we're experiencing so i love the concepts catherine of just sitting and observing whatever we're feeling just having that curiosity about it and that, that no look look what i'm look look what my, my feeling is today yeah, exactly i love just everything you just said and especially the point about the distinction between suffering and unnecessary suffering and a lot of what people are suffering is in their imagination mm. it's they're, they're suffering their own imagination um so understand that piece and to say hang on a minute <laughs> you know is this actually for sure happening uh, you know is it going to happen is it happening now often the answer to that question is no well, it was Seneca that said we suffer more in imagination than in reality so usually we're more afraid than we are actually hurt aren't we mm -hmm. yes Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and I often think, um, Catherine, that, that survival mechanism, which is a lot of where that fear comes from that you're speaking about, it's like you said, our ancestors were very tough people, and I completely agree with that. And if you think back hundreds of years, even thousands of years, you know, our, our physical safety was under threat a lot of the time. That's why we had to be so tough to survive. And now we, we live in a world where we have that same survival mechanism or fear response yet where our physical safety isn't under threat like you know our, our, our life might be under threat once twice maybe a few times in our entire life and so now we have this fear mechanism the survival mechanism and it's very overactive i suppose more in defense of our psychological self than our physical self so instead yeah. of worrying about that you know tiger over there that's going to leap out and attack or, or a rival tribe we're worried about what jenny at work thinks of us or or whether our girlfriend's messaging someone else on the phone you know yeah absolutely that's exactly how the the, the there's an imperfect translation of what the actual threat is so it's not a mastodon about to eat you it's <laughs> someone cut you off on the highway <laughs> and a lot of that comes down to the ego now doesn't it so that's the uh, getting a bruised ego or taking it personally or being offended or whatever the case may be so much of it comes back to that um yeah a very sensitive ego state absolutely yes it does the the, the um you know i call it the me project and it's this sort of, <laughs> you know the constant protection of me and the aggrandizement of me and the, what, what do oh. i like what do i don't like the whole thing all day long this um this running show and then of course if the me the sense of me becomes offended somehow. It's uh, it is a big drama in the in you know in the me project project. Totally. I, I loved in the Vipassana retreat I did you know, the first one, the ten day one, and and they're just talking about less me, less my, less I, and yeah. that that just rang through my head so much. And I uh, I went and did the CBT cognitive behavior therapy course, Catherine, and it's, it's heavily founded in Buddhist Buddhism and um, and Stoicism. And the the first thing the 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 guy running it said was, "You're all ignorant. You're all incompetent. You're all mediocre." And 
that was an amazing experience because sitting there listening that at the time, it just uh, it didn't trigger anything within me. In fact, I had an explosion of, of joy and delight. I was like, how wonderful, this is going to be amazing. But I looked around the room and everyone else was in deep suffering because they'd taken it personally. And I spoke to him on the last day and I said, look, I had this experience at the start and I couldn't figure out why. And then we understood that because of the work I'd done on myself a decade prior, I sort of, I heard what no one else was heard. And that was the raw truth. There was the Dharma and the logic. It was, we are all incompetent to a degree. We are all in you know, ignorance. We don't know everything. And we are all mediocre. We can't all do everything. So I, I, I took it as that raw logic wherever else was, everyone else was sort of. Yeah. It kind of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. <laughs> it was so so curious to experience it firsthand without realizing what was going on and to discover yeah. it later. Well, you're you're evidently a natural because uh, that that is the that is the way that one would experience those words if you could just see clearly. Is yeah, of course you're off the hook. You know, you don't have to present somebody to the world. You know. And don't we all love people who don't do that, who are just easy yeah. and who are not, you know, not having to defend some position or make themselves seem larger than life? Or, I mean, that, that kind of behavior becomes rather repellent, really. And, um, and when you're with someone who's, you know, just... What, I'll tell a story, and I'm, I, th I think it's in my book. You would have heard it, Nick. Um, your wife might have read it to you in bed. <laughs> um, um, my, I have a niece. She's now about 40. But, um, but when she was a little girl, she's, she's just been known in our family as an angel. And she's still like that. She's just angelic as a person. And she, was, she just came in that way. So she has an older sister who's a tougher character. And so one night we're at the dinner table. All the family was there. And her older sister is saying that there was a fight in the lunchroom that day at school over whose turn it was to get to be able to sit next to her younger sister and who happened to be sitting next to me at the dinner table and was very embarrassed by this story. And she leaned into me and she said, I don't know why I'm not nobody. <laughs> she just said it in her little, she's about eight years old. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> profound little buddha sitting next to you <laughs> she is and she always was she's she i just feel like with her she doesn't ever have like bitter thoughts or unkind thoughts she's constantly reframing everything into this sort of um this sort of sweet perspective and she's not ignorant about what's going on either she just has a different frame um so yes that's that that's a story from from our family life but of course that's exactly why people wanted to sit next to her and why people want to be around her you know and that, that harmony that you spoke about earlier i think uh, saying i don't know and admitting your ignorance and, and people people take here ignorance and they take it so literally but it's simply a lack of awareness it's not yeah. a judgment yeah. and I don't know creates a really nice harmony within me because it, it, yeah, I don't have to. I'm not under duress. I'm not in force. I can just sit there on that mountain seat, as you call it, Catherine, and just observe. And I don't know. And that's okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of opening when you look at it that way, isn't it? Oftentimes when we're striving to know everything or sound intelligent or be perfect, it's a very constricting kind of energy. And I think sitting in that, I don't know, it's quite open and curious as opposed to that. Yeah. And realistic, you know, um, <laughs> reality, you know, I mean, as we go, as we, as we go along on these, on these paths, um, we find ourselves more and more living in a mystery, you know, and that this, this world just becomes more and more mysterious to us, you know, and, and it does allow like this, this, the curiosity of the innocent, you know, and, and the, and the openness to see something that you're not looking looking through a kind of worn out lens that is very very occluded right you're seeing with fresh eyes mm. when you're living in a mystery because you, you so don't have a, you don't have a story life. as to what it's what this is all about you you realize there is no there is no story <laughs> but we love making stories as you mentioned don't we <laughs> yeah, we do and it goes against human nature. I see so many clients come in and I have to guide them into developing a sense of curiosity and wonder. They're two words that I use on repeat. I'm just like, just be curious, just be playful, just wonder what it's like and, and keep it open as you were talking about, Hess. But Catherine, it also speaks before, uh, you know, what you, what you were talking about was a sense of genuineness. When we don't have to, we can just be ourselves with less me. We don't have to put up that facade. And, and that genuineness is one of the seven qualities of awakened awareness in your book, that passionate presence. Uh, and when, when I was reading uh, the first one, we okay if we go through this and you sort of uh, talk about them as we go through them? Yes, sure. So the first one was silence. Mm. And I just, I just thought, what a, what a way to kick off! <laughs> it's such, a, such an awesome thing because people are afraid of silence. Yeah, you didn't ease into it there, Catherine. You really went for it. I love that. Well, it underpins all the rest of them, you know. So it, I, it wasn't. I didn't start out with it being the first one, but eventually I realized it has to be. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> So you, you run retreats and you, you, you do silent retreats as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, you know, I studied, Nick, I did Buddhist retreats for 17 years prior to leaving the sort of Buddhist scene. Mm -hmm. um, and then I began leading my own retreats uh, starting in 92, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been leading those silent retreats all over the world since not lately since we're locked down <laughs> but yeah. it's hard it's hard to be aware of anything in awakened awareness 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 if you're talking so much and and we can only what's the expression i think it was we, we can only learn through listening um if we're speaking we're only repeating what we already know so yeah that silence is a wonderful foundation for that awareness isn't it yeah, I have just found it. I always say at the beginning of the retreats, just relax. The silence is going to do all the work. Mm. That's really true. You just kind of fall into it. And what happens is, you know, insight comes and forgiveness comes and creativity comes. And you're not even, you're not trying for any of that. And I don't encourage people to go there with some kind of goal. Mm. But it is astounding to watch what occurs just simply by being quiet mm -hmm. and the it's it's like a mind bath you know and and suddenly you kind of 
see colors differently and you taste your food in a way that, that you might have as a child in a sense, you know, like if you're a kid and you're eating a fresh summer peach, you know, and every, every aspect of your, all of your senses wake up amazingly in silence. And, uh, and it's also an incredible ground for, for insight and for genius. In fact, you know, you just, a lot of people get super creative in that context. Mm. So I do find it helpful to do it in a group, even though we're mostly entirely silent. We're only, there's only ever talking in the two sessions of my Dharma dialogues per day. And that's just one-on-one me and one other person. The rest of the time we're walking, sitting and eating and being outdoors together. We also go on group walks at my retreats, but all in silence. And people get so sweet. It's like, it's like it just tunes you into, you know, the deepest part of yourselves and the most loving. Um, so it's, it's a powerful tried and true over the centuries um, methodology for setting things aright. And, and I use it in my own life after all these years of doing silent retreats, either as a participant or the leader of the retreat, um, I know that there comes a point in my own life where let's say a lot of cookies have been building up, you know, in the, in the system and, uh, and that I, you know, it's time for a, a clean out and a silent retreat is, is what I rely on to kind of get back on track. Ryan and I are big advocates of it. We, we'd like to disappear for a weekend, don't we, Ryan? We do. Uh, even a week if we can. Um, but yeah, and I think, I think it's something the world really needs right now because I think that where that creativity and ideas and epiphanies and realizations, you know, that's where they all come from. It's like, where did that idea come from? Well, it came from nothing. It came from silence, you know, and I think we're in a world now where we're so bombarded with information we're in the information age and a lot of the clients that i work with at the minute uh both both genders especially men though are just that creative side's just getting no expression at all and the whole 100 uh, percent of our life is just analytical 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 do 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 and there's no time for this creative side to get it expression and a lot of people are running into issues there because that side of us needs some sort of expression if it doesn't get it for for years at a time then we tend to run into a lot of issues like anxiety depression and, and related things like that absolutely and we're living in this information glut as we all know you know we're we're juggling so many details per day and so yes there's not much space to just you know, just breathe and, and, and tune into the senses, as I said. So yes, I think it's ever more important. And it is a, a pretty handy, you know, medicine for people who are experiencing extreme anxiety. I think retreats right now, of course, in this time of COVID, COVID, we can't really do in-person retreats so easily. But, um, but for whatever, whatever one can manage, whether it's, you know, on Zoom or, or, uh, just taking time with a friend or two on their own is helpful. Mm. I don't know about you guys, but my best ideas come from the shower. It's always when I'm in the shower, <laughs> just quiet and not thinking. That boom, ah, oh, that's that's cool. Um, right, you said it before that, that the world needs more silence, but it really needs the second of the seven qualities of awakened awareness, and that is tenderness. Mm. Tenderness. Yeah. What a lovely word. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I um, that's another thing I have observed with people who do spend more time in a kind of a dharmic frequency is they become a lot more kind and they feel things very, very deeply. The, the empathy quota quotient goes way up. Um, and that's another part of awareness really is when you're very deeply sort of tuned in to your own being, your own system, your own senses and so on, you pick up cues and you pick up, you know, information from others and you, you know, you feel a kind of self unto self as my teacher used to call it. You feel self unto self, whether you're looking at a bird or a dog or a person or something on the news, even, you know, um, that is, that produces an inevitable tenderness, not as an idea, but as something that's irresistible in your being. Mm. I think you're right, Nick, it's something the world does need. I'm thinking of like, you know, online, you know, like, you know, people speaking to each other online or commenting on things. And I'm like, tenderness isn't a word that I would use (laughs) in, 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 in that arena right now. Yeah, another word that doesn't get used much is contentment, right? Oh, Nick's, Nick's favourite word. <laughs> well, that's the definition of, to Google the definition of happiness and it's to be content. And so it amazes me how so many people have an attachment and a desired outcome to be happy, but yet they have no understanding of what happiness is. So there's an expectation that I should be happy. Right. But- they usually conflate it with something that needs to be added on. Yeah. Well, it's that that they that they. I think most people perceive happiness to be getting what they want, or being loved, and people saying nice things, or or their life going really smooth, Millie. Um, but uh, it's it's just not reality. So no. no, it's downstream instead of upstream. It's it's you float downstream and and you experience contentment. Yeah, but that that tenderness as well. The, the self of the self. I, I talk about we can't help anybody else unless we're okay so if we're stuck in a rip and metaphorically and we're in survival mode we're in fight flight we're in the sympathetic nervous system we're in no capacity to even be aware that someone else is in struggle town Mm. um, let alone help them and assist them with compassion and empathy and understanding so i think there's this i know what ryan and i talk about is that there needs to be a real focus on developing an emotional self-sufficiency and that's probably emotional intelligence you know but self-awareness self-regulating um and so when we're okay we can be kinder we can be more compassionate we can be more empathetic we can give instead of just trying to take all the time yeah yeah i often say that when your own well is full it then spills over And um, so to really understand that it's not a selfish act to make sure that your own system is regulated, as you say, and is, is you know, is clear and calm. Um, it's, that's not a selfish act in the world. It does make you feel better, but <laughs> it is also a gift to everyone around you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of us are doing the opposite to that, and that is, you know, trying to give from that well when that well's dry. And when we do that, where we start to dip into resentment and when we resent pretty much everyone, but we even resent the people that we love the most. And that resentment's kind of the, the opposite to contentedness, you know, yes. so it's like we're going in the wrong direction. 
Yeah, yeah, right. And it's it's um, a kind of a an unfortunate endless loop that starts to happen. You know, you just get more and more exhausted and more frustrated and more resentful and so on. So yeah, it's really good to um, and to this point, Ryan, um, to interrupt these negative states as soon as you can and in any way you can, like just watch a movie, do anything, just interrupt it and stop the chemistry that's, the chemistry is already kind of going through the system, but at least you're you're reworking any further chemical dump in your brain that is um, causing this agitation. And so, yeah. We call that a bicep curl for the brain, Catherine. What is it called? A bicep curl for the brain or mental rep, a mental repetition. So we catch ourselves in a, an emotional disturbance, in anxiety, depression or anger or guilt, and we have an awareness of it. And as soon as we realise we're feeling it, we have to laugh at ourselves because it does, as you said, it breaks that chemical reaction um, and it doesn't deepen the disturbance we can then be in a position to, and we're laughing at how irrational we're being really. It's like, well, I'm being a five-year-old. I'm not getting what I want. All right, I'm going to have a laugh of that. And then I'm going to reverse, you know, pull myself back to a neutral state and then go into, you know, I have to consciously go into more constructive thinking. And so, yeah, we call, we, we get clients to do those bicep curls for the brain, which oh, creates that's, resilience. That's cool. That's a great image. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, just, and it's just, I think, the, 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 I like the rep analogy because you do get better at it. You, I suppose you get stronger or build more resilience because these feelings are very, uh, they're very magnetic. It's like you have a very open awareness or consciousness and then whenever you get some sort of disturbance, it really, it pulls you down. It's like this, whether it's anxiety or sadness or anger, whatever it is, it pulls that awareness to like a, a singular point of where the disturbance is. And then if we don't catch it, we just sort of dive head first into it and it, and it becomes a lot uh, worse than it could have been if we caught it early. Yeah, well, you, you recondition the same habit, whereas if you interrupt it, you start you start conditioning a different habit. I call it a habit of freedom where you're constantly, well, not constantly, but often anyway, um, when those sort of chemicals start running through the body, whatever the first signs of stress are in your system and you notice it's from some kind of imaginary thing, it's not necessarily that you have to get out of the way of immediate danger, then you start readjusting and, and it becomes this toggle that can go on through the day and just becomes more and more habitual. I love yeah, that. The neuro- habit of freedom. That's good. That's, that's a habit that I want. <laughs> and, and neuroplasticity, that's, that's literally re- going down another neurological path. That's literally rewiring your mind. So mm-hmm. the more we do that, the more we're going to experience that state of freedom uh, yeah. because we're, we're changing that. Yeah. Instead of a reaction, it's going to be a more mindful response. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so that, takes us into the next one. So I've got silence, which is beautiful. I've got tenderness, which is amazing. But then embodiments. This is this is one mm. I love as well because so many people have these wonderful thoughts, but then they don't action it and mm-hmm. they don't follow through. And so that embodiment is critical, isn't it? It really is. And um, in, in earlier days in the whole sort of Dharma, spiritual mindfulness scene, there was a lot of disembodiment, frankly. Um, so, you know, I became interested fairly early in my time with it, of wanting to see how does this apply in the world, which is why I wrote my first book, 
I wrote that one in the late 80s and published it in 1990, called In the Footsteps of Gandhi. And it's it was profiles and interviews with sort of Gandhi-type leaders of our time who were very engaged in the world of activism. So embodiment to me is both living in your own body, in, in being awake in your senses, being um, you know, fully present in those ways, but also embodying yourself in your world, right? Looking around and seeing that you are of this earth and that you're not some sort of disembodied spirit floating around. You know, you're, you're a corporeal creature. Um, and to really celebrate that and to realize that, you know, like most of our, what we call our pleasures are actually experienced through the body. Yeah. And most of our uh, feelings of connection, you know, I feel a lot more connected to, you know, the bush turkeys in my, in my um, little forest here um, than I do to outer space, for instance, you know, <laughs> there's just something about, you know, there's just, you know, that we are these, these creaturely fleshy things and, and our, our senses are such a privilege, you know, to, experience people really overlook them like if you think about losing one of them you really quickly realize that that would be unpleasant mm -hmm. and bad um so i mean you could try to make the best of it and people do and they're, they're amazing of course but you know when you really consider what it would be to not be able to see or hear or touch or you know have have sensation um taste and so on smell um so yeah, embody, embodiment for me is really living on this earth, of this earth, and not trying to be in any kind of transcendence, which I really have no use for. I, I had little use for it ever. And now I have uh, really a kind of a twitch when I hear that kind of languaging or perspective, uh, because I see it as extremely dangerous and uh, being disembodied is a way that people justify raping the earth, right? Mm. And, they, and, and, and also that, that disembodiment, especially in kind of Buddhist or other spiritual circles, um, you hear the term a lot these days, spiritual bypassing. Is that yes. what that is? Yeah. Yes. That's definitely a component of transcendent. Yeah. It's like people find this, um, you know, dimension of, of union or God or whatever you want to call it. And then sort of decide that they'll hang out there whenever things get too tough in the real world. And, um, and then we're not engaging with the real world. And it's, it's all of these forms of denial. Like, like I, I say in the, in, in my book, passionate presence, uh, you know, like saying, oh, it's all perfect. You know, whatever is happening is just all perfect. It's meant to be. It's some greater plan. Or it's karma. You know, this one has a cruelty in it because it's kind of like you see all these people suffering, miserable suffering going on, and you buffer yourself in your own privilege by saying, oh, they're just experiencing their karma. Right. Um, so these kinds of disembodied stories that that have this um, detachment of caring in them embedded in the in the philosophy of it mm -hmm. are I think quite dangerous and 
frankly cruel, <laughs> but I know they're not intended to be cruel, but they, the effect of them ends up becoming kind of cruel. Um, whereas, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying, I watched a, a documentary on filmsforchange.org the other day called United Natures, um, and it had another Dumbo um, uh, interviewee, what was his name? Um, David Holmesgren. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the one of the godfathers of permaculture and they were talking about the you know, how disconnected we are and and we we see ourselves outside of nature and Catherine I'm not sure if you've read a book called the eight master lessons of nature um, but mm. highly recommend it as well and it's it's yeah, just all about this concept of how humanity sees itself not as a species apart of nature but we're very disembodied and they're trying to get um, a, un a, a planetary law, a society law, that the earth is a living being and the mm. earth has rights. And I think mm. it's wonderful. Yeah, one of uh, someone I have followed for the over the years, Derek Jensen, has a book called The Myth of Human Supremacy. And, uh, the Myth of Human Supremacy. It's a fantastic title just as a concept. <laughs> Ryan and I are licking our pens. We're, we're both writing it down. <laughs> yeah, the, the myth of Humanity. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and, and when you start to see the world through that lens, which I think is a much more accurate lens, um, it really calls into question so many things that, yeah. you know, that humans are up to. Um, and, I yeah. can highly recommend the United Natures. It's, um, yeah, lots of, they ask lots of different people from different spaces. Father, Father Bob's in there as well. Yeah, so yeah, wonderful documentary. Well, I think let's let's talk a little bit about consciousness and, and activism because we're sort of heading down this road now. It's something that I wanted to touch on before we jump into number four on the list, Nick. Um, Catherine, with activism, you know, it's come up on the podcast quite a bit with people and obviously things that have been happening in the world. There's been, you know, Black Lives Matter, Matter over in the US and, and people, especially in Melbourne where we're from, who are just not happy about this whole lockdown thing, keep going. And, you know, how are we best to approach activism through this dharmic lens? Because a lot of the time, what me and Nick have seen is people, I suppose, trying to fight fire with fire or trying to pour petrol on the fire to try yeah. and put it out. So what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, what I've observed over the years, because my, my journalism specifically focused, as I said, on, on being around activists, but activists who were kind of immersed in consciousness, but to the degree that people around them were, um, you know, sort of firebrands in anger and often working for very righteous causes, but angry within those causes, they get burned out. They just get totally flattened, burned out. And you're absolutely right. It's fire with fire, you know, it usually doesn't work out well. well ang um, anger and anxiety aren't a sustainable fuel source, are they? No, they're not. No. And people mistakenly think that they are. They think that their their angry righteousness is their fuel source. And maybe it is a Kickstarter, but mm. it, it's like you say, not sustainable. So um as for what to do on this. Well, well, let me put it to you in a different way, Catherine. I've got a client. I've got a few scenarios here. And Hassis is going to hopefully um, present this in a way that we can talk about. So I had a client and he's very um, agitated about the state of the world and, and what's happening. And it's not right. It's not, it's not fair. It's not right. And I can hear all these cognitive distortions that he's employing. But we brought it down to where's that? line between sitting back and being passive and 
do, trying to affect change. And so how, how do we find that harmony, I guess that word we can come back to, of, of, you know, and, and go back to when Tibet was invaded by the Chinese, like they're non-violent. So were they just meant to sit back and be run over and be extinguished or were they meant to stand up and create resistance? So how do we in this day and age find that balance, do you think? Well, I always say that the most beautiful forms of doing flow from being. So first one is sitting in one's kind of calm space, clear space, quiet space, really listening deeply to what is the greater good in any given circumstance, and then seeing where you're pulled and where you're called. And your own talents will then be naturally used, just as you two are doing this podcast, right? You're, there's certain ways, and, and in your work, your actual, you know, day jobs, um, um, there's a, a, a kind of tuning that I would say is necessary for the work to be effective and beautiful and sustainable, sustainable, not only sustaining. Um, so, yeah, I can't, I can't necessarily say what specific. Is it more through influencing a gentle flowing influence like David Holmesgren with his permaculture, the state of the planet, the way we're treating the planet's not sustainable, but he's not, he's not demanding that people start being active in permaculture and enforcing it or, mm-hmm. or being angry about it. He's just going about his business and trying to create the gentle flowing ripple effect. I think that's exactly it. Mm. You, have to, you have to move from your own, your own gifts and talents and your own inspirations, right? So it might be that your work or your offering may look like it's only affecting a few people, but maybe one of those people starts flowering and affecting a lot of people. You, you stop taking any accounting mm. of how much influence you're having. When you do it really from the purest place you can find in yourself, right? Then it will just have its own life, whatever that may be, right? It'll just so go Stop making it about you. It comes back to that mm-hmm. me, my, I. It's not the ego involved and it's not I am offended by this. It's just a, yeah. it's a, a very natural. Yeah, I think it's kind of like how the only I involved would be how can I serve this moment in time from that deepest yeah. part of me. It sounds like this guy you're talking about, it's a beautiful example, actually. It's like, here's instead of trying to fight a problem, I'm just going to create a solution and I'm going to mm. do that out of the energy of deep respect and love for the planet. And then, so he's inspired by the sounds of it. And when you're inspired, it's like people gravitate towards you. Like, hey, what's this guy doing? And all of a sudden you've got this community that keeps growing because you're doing it from the right uh, energy source. You become yeah, attractive. I mean, those were the kinds of people I interviewed for 12 years. Amazing. Who began, like, you know, um, Cesar Chavez, for instance, who you may not know of, but he was the founder of the uh, Farm Workers Union in America. And he began by, they were, you know, he and his immigrant friends were all just working the fields in California under incredible oppression by the corporations, basically slave uh, workforces and miserable conditions. And, you know, so many of his friends were suffering that they would gather at his little tiny humble house and sit around the kitchen table and talk about their woes together. And because of this inspiration in himself, when he was one of them, 
he began coordinating and he took incredible abuse over the years. And he went on many long fasts inspired by Gandhi, um, which eventually killed him because one of the long fasts of 40 days kind of shut down uh, wow. in, such, in such a way that his health never really recovered. But he, because of his purity of heart, he built a massive movement in the United States. It changed all the laws in terms of how those farm workers are treated in California and everywhere. So it's those kinds of, those were the people I was interviewing all the time that, you know, even the Dalai Lama who, when I first met him, he was not very well known, believe it or not. Um, I met him in the seventies first and, um, yeah, he just wasn't that well known. You could actually go and see him in Bodhgaya fairly easily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, but because of his sweetness and because of the of the um, the tenderness, the, the tenderness yeah. and the compassion that people felt in coming to know their the, the story of the Tibetans. Again, a huge worldwide movement, a pro-Tibet movement, has has. Uh, has come about. However, you know, to go up against the Chinese, you know, even at the time back then, I mean, this, you know, the Tibetans were a very sort of rural, you know, culture that had no weapons or anything mm. like that. They couldn't have done anything other than what they did. Um, and ironically, the word got out eventually through the power of the culture that was in exile and who people responded to out of the goodness of their own hearts in understanding the story. So I would say to answer this question very roundabout way here, um, just offer all of your gifts freely and offer them from the place that you feel is you are in service to the greater good. You're not the leader. You're not the main story. You, you don't really track whether you're getting enough credit or not. You just keep offering it from that place and then see what happens. Some people's destiny is that a lot happens, you know, especially people who um, have, you know, well, who are influencing a lot of people in whatever ways they are. But some people's work is more quiet. So, so we don't have to sit in full unconditional acceptance. We can, we can accept things, but then with a realization that, if we come from a purity, we can affect influence. We can affect change from that pure state rather than, you know, the writing. You can, we can be a Rosa Parks and just sit gently on the, on a backseat of a bus mm -hmm. rather than, you know, get 50 of our mates and get drunk and go and flip cars and. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I would even, I mean, this is going to be a little bit uh, controversial what I'm about to say, but I would even be cautious about, the idea of affecting change. Mm -hmm. I would just say simpler would be and more in a kind of contentment way <laughs> is move from your own love of your heart and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Because well, I suppose if, if your intention is changed, then you're not accepting part of what's happening. So and you're, not, you're not in contentedness. And I actually just said that first time when you said, Catherine, before about uh, even us doing the podcast, it's the first time I've seen us as activists, Nick, but we kind of are, right? Because like, we're, 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 there's a, we believe there's, I suppose, um, 
the way people perceive mental and emotional health and addiction and these kind of things sort of needs a bit of an update and an upgrade. So our work's a lot around re-educating people what that stuff is. That's kind of our own type of, of activism, Nick. We didn't even know it. And, well, and your, God, own, we're gonna... and your own service to the greater good, your own very clear service, you know, so... We'll continue yeah. to sit in that ignorance um, of, of not knowing that we're activists. Forget, forget that that from, came to an awareness. <laughs> then it won't come from ego. So, Catherine, it, this may sound controversial as well, but COVID is affecting a lot of people. There is a lot of suffering. But for, I've had an amazing COVID, and, and that sounds really silly perhaps, but I, I've spent this time in the best way that I possibly could, and I've created a lot of growth and and just real it's been a very organic process it's been you know i've started up in a mental health gym and opened up a new space and i'm yeah. bought a new house and um but i i hear these people as well saying how unfair it is and how it's it's not right what the government's doing and and you know that they're stuck i can hear so many people are stuck in their own beliefs of what they think should be happening yeah. instead of this understanding and acceptance that it's it's impermanent it's going to go away yes absolutely no we're seeing uh we're seeing really the best and worst of humanity in terms of how you know some people are fully into into cooperation and into acceptance of the situation and doing their very best to mitigate the suffering and to limit the number of deaths, you know, and, and all of the rest of it, and then the spread and all kinds of things. Um, and others, again, they're stuck in their meat projects uh, of how is this affecting me? And I don't like this. And this is an inconvenience or this is not, you know, and, and for some people, they have far bigger issues than just being inconvenienced. And I understand that's a different level of difficulty to come to acceptance if you've lost your job or your business or some you know other your house um but yeah i mean we're seeing a quite a spectrum of reactions um one of the things i'm aware of and and like, like you i feel covid is not the big the biggest threat we have Actually, you know, this well, is going to be a perspective of humanity, and it's 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 not that big a blip on the radar. No, and it's not the threat that that the climate collapses, you know, and um, so it's a very different different animal. And it's a bit uh, of metanoia has. It's a bit of a, a breaking down, isn't it? And we get to yeah. rebuild something yeah. afterwards. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and it's also exercising a bit of um, letting go for a lot of people in terms of, like I have been, I have been very impressed in, in a sense with how quickly the world adjusted to this. Not that we're fully adjusted, but just there is a lot of, of cooperation and a lot of like the whole world is in this, this thing together and it's sort of a, a one subject agreement that this is a problem <laughs> it's been very character revealing but i think now it gets to be character defining and whether that's on a personal level or as a family or as a society or as a country whatever level you want to go on i think we we do get to define but as you said Catherine, it's, it's amazing how we have adapted fairly quickly so why can't we do that with fossil fuels and everything else which is a, a question that pops up now yeah and and also, uh, in, in conjunction with that, uh, I was thinking that the 
ways that we've been curtailed in our uh, kind of our kind of romp of having fun and getting stuff and having experiences and going a traveling and so on, you know, we've had to let go of a lot of that. And so we've, we've kind of exercised our let go muscles, which I think is also good for us. We, we didn't realize how much freedom we actually had. So we we're probably taking so much of it for granted, uh, I think. Yeah, we sure, we sure were. And that's now clear. And yet, you know, people are making um, simpler choices and, making do with things and fixing things on their own, like, you know, repairing things and mm. all of those, those are all very good. So that the sense of embodiment, if we, if we bring it back to the, the seven qualities of awakened awareness, I, I talk about, I can't ask my clients to do something I'm not prepared to do myself. So, and there's no point just turning up and consciously understanding and interpreting the Dharma all this information you have to live and breathe it so you, we do need to embody it but that then links into the next one which is how wonderful you put these in order it creates that genuineness it creates that authenticity doesn't it mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's right um yeah that's another component of when there is a more of a quiet calm within the being right a quiet heart you could say you know even though you might still talk and sing and laugh and shout and whatever but that the, there's a kind of internal quietness in general um you really do find that you don't have anything to prove and you find the the strain of having to be disingenuous and usually that is coming with an agenda like you have some kind of agenda and so you meet someone and you're not really being yourself because you've got something that you want to collect or impress that that also is a form of wanting to collect something you want. You Ryan, want and all, Ryan and I call that having um, a sense of deficiency within yeah, us. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I think that concept of having nothing to prove, I mean, it's just, it's so foreign to a lot of people because we've just been our culture, our parents, everyone brings us up this way where we're constantly feeling like we need to prove something in every single situation. And I think it's, yeah. it's such a burden to be lifted to think, Hey, I've got nothing to prove or nothing to gain by this interaction with someone. I'm just going to let it be. Yeah. And when, you, when you're living with that feeling of having something to prove, it's more and more agitating and depressing. And it's why so many of the young people you can are going, feel it. You can feel it. Yeah. yeah. And from I know, such a young age, awesome. we're getting tested, we're getting graded, we're getting evaluated and assessed, and then we're getting yeah. judged to be good or bad or for failures or successes. It's like from prep and grade one to, you know, all the way up. And now with the social media, you know, revolution that we're all living in and the young people are getting very depressed from being on, on social media a lot. I mean, it's a, there's terrible numbers in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, you, you, you can... So that's another thing in, in this genuineness of, you know, just the simplicity of self and of just showing up and that's good enough. <laughs> you know? I, I, I just remember the story from my favorite story, I think from your book was the, the wolf boy and the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us that one, please? Yeah. I was in Bodh Gaya in uh, the eighties, early eighties, one of many trips. Uh, Bodh Gaya, for those who don't know, is where the, the Buddha is supposedly uh, to have been enlightened. And it's kind of the Mecca of Buddhism. Anyway, um, 
so I was there with some friends, Jack Cornfield and a couple of other friends. We were all hanging out. And we began to hear stories of this dog boy that had been found. Oh, look, there's a dog there. (laughs) (laughs) Dog, dog. (laughs) Is that a pit or a staffy or what? Uh, She's a mastiff cross bulldog. Okay. Uh, Polly, she's beautiful. Talk about being tender. (laughs) (laughs) She's body's tender. She's she's living these seven qualities. (laughs) Yes, I yeah, I really love animals. The other animals. (laughs) Anyway, um, so we began hearing stories that this group of sort of social scientists and psychologists were going around the country with this with this child that had been discovered living among dogs, and it was just unknown how he got there. How long was he with dogs? How did they live? Nothing was known. He was just discovered. And they brought him to Bodh Gaya and the Dalai Lama asked to meet the child. So um, we were very lucky to be invited to this quite small gathering. And mostly we were there with the social scientists and the people who were handling the child, you could say. So I went there expecting that my heart was just going to be blown open by seeing this little creature, you know, like by seeing uh, this poor thing that had been so abandoned. Um, But I was kind of shocked when I was actually in the presence of the child because it was, and I don't think that would be the case today. I was obviously a lot younger in the early eighties, but um, I was shocked and not feeling a connection necessarily because it was like watching a very strange creature, like something alien. Like I, as I said in my book, something like half human and half some other animal. Mm. So, um, so I'm kind of working with my own feelings in watching this scenario and the social scientists are all busy telling the Dalai Lama what their program is with the child and how they're working with the child, trying to get him to just learn to eat with his, you know, hands and things. And uh, there were no, there's no language that the child had. Um, unclear exactly how old he was, maybe four or five, somewhere in there. Um, maybe six. Um, but anyway, I don't remember all the specifics of what they were saying, but they had brought the child over to the Dalai Lama near him. And the Dalai Lama is with one ear listening to them speak, but with the other ear, he's petting the child like you would a dog, like you're petting your dog right now. He's, He's stroking and petting the child. And I could see that the social scientists and the psychologists, they're kind of, they're kind of ignoring that. <laughs> like, like, is this okay? Should he this? <laughs> but he starts, the Dalai Lama starts murmuring to the child and making kind of like you would doggy noises to a dog, you know, like, good, good boy. <laughs> and, um, and it was so dear. And as I called that little section in the book, it's the language of the heart where you speak to the language someone can hear. You speak the language of understanding for that person um, or for the creature or for the animal or whatever. And so, yeah, that's Did the social that scientists, did, did, didn't they say to the Dalai Lama, oh, don't do that because it's no. going to 
enable him to encourage more dog-like behavior no, no, ah. the sense was you don't say things like that to the dalai lama <laughs> <laughs> but you could see that maybe if they were in a different context they might have yeah. might have intervened but they definitely did not dare do that and so uh, that really kind of exploded my heart and and again torqued some kind of understanding of what real compassion looks like that even with something very alien you know that the Dalai Lama went to the the being, being to being, self unto self. That's where he went with it. Well, once yeah, again, he didn't heart. have an he didn't have an agenda either. Did no. he? he just he just no. spoke to the nature of this boy as he presented. He didn't have an expectation that he should use his hands and to eat his food. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful story. What a great story! I love that. <laughs> so what's the next one nico we've got to get through these last three three before yeah. we jump discernment off. discernment is discernment. The next one. so to judge well <laughs> yes yes beautiful i like that yeah discern again uh when you're sitting in your authenticity when you have nothing to prove you just see more clearly right you just do mm. When you don't see through a lens of desire or aversion or, you know, love or hatred, whatever it is, you know, when you're not looking through, when I, well, I shouldn't have said love there, I should, should have said greed, but when you're not looking through a particular lens, which is clouding, then you see clearly and or you see as clearly as um, These are such a great progression, aren't they? Because it's like you could... Do, you can put discernment first, but then not if it's we get silent first, and then we become tender, and then we become genuine, authentic, and all of a sudden our discernment we have so much more clarity. Yes. Yeah, and and that takes away the you know as we talk about the um, when someone says I can't see straight or I can't think clearly when they're in a blind rage, yeah. all of, all of the semantics throughout that speak of that mind that is bent out of shape the cognitive distortions that are being employed so that discernment and it comes back to the eightfold path right speech um mm. it's it's yeah that clarity is paramount isn't it yeah and also to the point about the neurology um there's a lot of good evidence that in stress and in anxiety and in you know depression and all those all those uh, kinds of negative chemical experiences um you you really cannot think straight it it mm. does impair your cognition mm. yeah no but blood flow to the prefrontal cortex gets shut down and also when we make a decision it will be based out of what potential threat or fear scenario is going to happen in the future so it's kind of and then also infatuation is the other side of that if we make, make decisions when we're in an infatuated state just the other end of the the spectrum yeah, yeah. and so then we yeah. want to be in that in the middle there Yes, that's right. You wouldn't be in the clear state. <laughs> having that clarity allows us to shift into the sixth quality of awakened awareness, which is delight. Delight. Yes, exactly. Yeah, delight. And it's and and, and that's another thing that's so uh, wonderful in, in the retreats is, you know, sometimes people will arrive kind of, you know, grim from the world and grim from their jobs and their whatever, their relationships and their dramas. But within a couple of days, it's like you're at kid camp, you know, you're just, you're just so happy. And so, you know, light, light in their being. And because people can get very heavy with this, this 
personal development journey or this self-discovery it can be it can it can take a great toll on their lightness because they get addicted to it and they i have to be better i have to improve i have to stop mm. suffering which so is like lightness. making more money or having a bigger house it never ends <laughs> yeah my, my teacher used to say it's like being a beast of burden driven by a madman yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's what? good. Go I, like to, that. I like to think. Go get that. Now go get that. Right. <laughs> I love to think that there's a Jamaican waiting for us when we reach enlightenment and he says, Welcome to Delight. Welcome <laughs> to enlightenment. <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> That's just how I see it. Like you would disappear in a shower of glitter and rainbows and unicorn tears. And, and there's this Jamaican there. Welcome to Delight. Welcome and to Delight, man. You're in delight. You're in delight, Mark. Yes, yes. Well, and also the other nice thing about it, though, is that it is um, it tamps down fear in others when when you have that kind of buoyancy, and it, and it's not kind of based in some sort of goofy belief system, but rather that it's just your natural way of being. That you're there's a lightness, and it kind of is catchy. Yeah. Yeah. I call it. A, I, I talk about terms of irrational belief, but I'm going to think I'm going to change that word to a goofy, goofy belief system. <laughs> that it's so much better. It oh, is, like, isn't you, it? You goofball! You're such a goofball. Look at like you you're tripping rational. over your own belief systems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we're if we're if we're hanging in Jamaica and, and being in delight, um, <laughs> then we can shift into the seventh quality, which is wonder, a sense of wonderment. Yeah. Yes, wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do, how do we wonder? <clears throat> well, it's to what we were speaking about before, the living in the mystery and that, you know, more and more you feel very surrendered to not knowing and not needing to know. And so then you're in a natural wonder, you know, and you can listen to any anyone speaking and kind of have this openness to hearing what their view is and um you know you, you, as you get older i can tell you from this vantage point <laughs> <laughs> grasshoppers um you i'm know, 82 ryan's 74 oh wow it's a good skincare routine your program i tell you I, I <laughs> it's, it's delight delight make us younger <laughs> we shower and delight every morning it's working <laughs> anyway um you know, you do get you do get so much more humbled over time uh, in the things you thought you knew and the, the opinions you had, and more and more you're just happy to just let it all live in wonder and really uh, look at like when it's I look at the yeah when I look at the night sky, you know, for instance, you know. Um, it just reminds me, actually, of wow, this is this is quite a show, and who knows about any of it? We know very little with our monkey minds. Mm. Is, um, is, there, is there a bit of an oxymoron in play here, Catherine, with the concept of awareness, but also I don't know? So there's that uh, because you know, we we can talk about ignorance is bliss, and people who don't know they're in suffering. Um, you know, I don't have a problem. And so their, their ignorance uh, of the fact that they can do other, other things. But then on the other end of the spectrum, they say, I don't know. So can we play between the two? Yes. I think that is the, there's a coexisting kind of experience there in that mm. 
there are certain things you know experientially, right? You've experimented with truth, as Gandhi called his story of his his autobiography was called "The Story of My Experiments with Truth." Mm-hmm. You made your own. I've made my own. There are certain things we can say we do know from our own direct experience, whether we continue to adhere to that same way of perceiving is anybody's guess. Like I said, I used to know things that I don't know anymore, <laughs> but, but there are certain things that did last uh, in terms of my experience that has maintained uh, consistency. And so I would say w- the way we're using awareness is a little bit different in that it's not so much awareness of facts or of yeah. specifics or of history or even personal history, right? It's but rather, that's right. It's a different type of awareness that's that we share with all the creatures, right? The, the, mm. They all have their own versions of awareness, you know. Well, I've got a, I've got one final question for you, and and I'll thank you for that summary. It, it made perfect sense um and i'm still aware of how much i don't know i uh i went to get a massage one day and i was driving in the driveway to to the place and i saw a wallet on the side of the road and i stopped and i picked up the wallet and i took it in and and i opened it It was about fifteen hundred dollars in the wallet and this was uh probably seven or eight years ago and I went into a little bit of a state of anxiety. I'm like, oh, God, is this karma? If I keep it, is it? am I going to you know, store some karma? Or is it the universe actually going, hey, Nick, you deserve this $1,500? And I got so stuck and I didn't know what to do, so I just took it to the police station. I threw it at them and said, here, just, I found the wallet. Take it. Get rid of it. And so how, how does – and I hear similar stories to this. How does somebody know whether karma's in, karma is involved or whether it's the universe gifting them something? Do you have a thought on well, that? Well, um, as you may have inferred when I said I, I'm really not a fan of the idea of karma anymore. I used to like it long ago because it kind of leveled the playing field, made everything just, and I had a big thing about justice and all this. But <clears> – <throat> What I would say is that you have to live with you, you know, mm. and you have to sleep at night. And anything like that would likely cause a kind of niggling, rumbling in one's being and in one's mind. That's so, what I felt. It. I thought it was going to be the pee under the mattress. Yes, that's right. And it would be a very, it would be a very expensive fifteen hundred dollars to have yeah. a <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. What a good way of putting it. Yep. (laughs) Awesome. Catherine, it was an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you today. I got so much out of this conversation. Um, Really appreciate your time. Where can people who are listening uh, get in touch with some of your work? What's the best place for them to do that? CatherineIngram.com. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) Simple is best. Simple is best. Catherine, but you thank- guys are great. It was a really fun interview, and um, I, I definitely need to get on your program given your your um, your uh, advanced years and looking as you do. We're going to start bottling delights, and we'll, uh, <laughs> send you a bottle up to up to Lennox Heads. No problem. There's a little Jamaican flag on it. Perfect. <laughs> and I'd love to extend an invitation for you when we can travel. If you find yourself in Melbourne, um, I'd love to have you into MindFit 
headquarters. That's my business. And um, yeah, have have you do a, a workshop or a presentation or something. There's lots of people in the area that would love to see you in person and, and listen to what you have to say. So I would, yeah. I would love to do that. And I used to come very frequently to Melbourne um, until we got locked down. And I was even going to be possibly moving there for, for part time. Uh, I, I love that city, and so yes, that's a that's a yes to that. Uh, Great. Uh, we have, a spare, we have a spare room in our new house, so you can uh, you can crash there when you when you move down part time. And um, I'm sure my girlfriend, honey, if you're listening to this, we uh, we have a new housemate, so perfect. <laughs> it all works well. It's just the flow. It's just the flow. It's, it's just how, it's, it's, it's your dharma. Pandemic. It's all, it's all <laughs> <laughs> uh, Catherine, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate you and all the work and the teachings that you provide and um, we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, dear. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye, Bye, Thank you for tuning into the Woke Blokes podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Also, leave us a five-star rating. We thank you so much and we'll see you all next time.